You are now listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, where the worlds of sports medicine and performance collide. My name is Mike Quintins. I'm a physical therapist with an entrepreneurial mindset that specializes in treating orthopedic and sports injuries. I'm bringing on the brightest and sharpest in the field of sports medicine to share their best practices and explore the gap where medicine meets performance. What's happening, Performance Therapy Nation? This is Mike Quintins, your host of the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Brett Shannon. Dr. Shannon is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Nemours DuPont in Brimar, PA, which is about 20 minutes outside of the city of Philadelphia. Dr. Shannon specializes in musculoskeletal problems affecting teenagers, children, and infants. Today, we will be discussing some of the common sports-related injuries that Dr. Shannon treats and his philosophies on surgical indications for the youth athlete. But before we get into the discussion, I would like to thank our listeners. The feedback on our website, onqueperformancetherapy.com, and the reviews have been fantastic. The feedback we get from our listeners drives my passion to continue to reach out to professionals like Dr. Shannon to broadcast their expertise and inspire thought for our audience. With that said, I do have a 30-second request. When this is over, pull up the page that this is playing on, tap the three little dots lined up in a row in the bottom right corner of the screen, tap the go to show button, and then scroll down to the bottom, add a review, offering a few thoughts uh, or, or even requests. Thank you for taking the time to do this. So let's get into Dr. Brett Shannon. He is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at Nemours DuPont Pediatrics and Nemours Alfred I. DuPont uh, Hospital for Children. Dr. Shannon attended Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for his medical degree as well as for his orthopedic surgery residency. His fellowship in pediatric orthopedics was completed at Boston's Children's Hospital, which is considered one of the top children's hospitals in the world. Dr. Brett Shannon specializes in sports medicine injuries, pathologies of the spine, as well as infant, child, and adolescent hip disorders. Dr. Shannon was published, has published research articles in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, as well as the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Shannon. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is cool. So, uh, so you're originally from Florida. Uh, you know, it's all about a girl. Now you're located in the Philadelphia area. You have two beautiful children, and uh, and now you're in you're in cold Philly. How's it been? Yeah, that's right. It's great to be here. You know, I've always kind of known that I would probably end up living in Philadelphia one day. My my wife and I met when we were in college at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. And she had gone to high school in Malvern, Pennsylvania, and is from Chester County. So I've been coming here for a very long time. And then uh, after Notre Dame, I lived in Baltimore for a long time and then in Boston. And so now I've been here for a couple of years in Philadelphia. And uh, we're just thrilled to be here. We love living in the city and being able to treat patients on the main line. And it's been great. That's awesome. We're, we're actually, genuinely, we are fortunate to have you in this area. What you do for uh, our children and in the Philadelphia area is really uh, it's special and unique. So thank you for that. Oh, thank Seriously. you very much. Um, uh, before we get it even into some of these questions, I, I, I'm going to throw this one at you real quick. The question of the day at the office was the greatest college rivalry. Notre, and you mentioned Notre Dame. So is there, what is the greatest college rivalry in your opinion? You know, I think probably if you look at Michigan and Ohio state, the amount of passion that's there, and the legendary victories for both teams, the size of the stadiums, the intensity of the rivalry. It's, I just think that's the best one. Yeah. You know, I, as a Notre Dame fan, I always hated when Michigan would come to play. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But uh, I've been out, you know, I've been to Penn State. I've been to, been to st- games there. The, the intensity is enormous. And, it, and Notre Dame Stadium is, is 
beautiful and wonderful. It's iconic. It's iconic. Yeah. It's just not as big as those other facilities. And uh, the games are just on another level with those big, big 10 rivalries. So right. they're always, I, I think they're the next level up. The Notre Dame's uh, big East independent ACC. What are they now? Yeah, that's, that's a up. great question. No one can keep up. <laughs> so still, still independent in football. And they, uh, they transitioned into basically an ACC affiliation out of the, okay. after having been in the big East for a long time. So, and then with the pandemic and the reorganization, they had agreed to play ACC teams in football on a rotating basis. And oh, gotcha. You know, so, all right. It's all working right. out. Yeah. No, nah, listen, ACC is great, great, great football, great sports. Um, all right. Thanks for <laughs> answering the, uh, the curveball there. All right. So uh, what about your background has led you to the field of sports medicine and orthopedic surgery? I actually grew up with orthopedic surgery in my house. My dad is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, just as I am. And so every day when I was young, we were inundated with x-rays and arthroscopy videos and um, my weekends involved a lot of going to the hospital to basically be there while he made rounds and checked on his patients. And he's one of those old school, dedicated physicians that was always around, always available, um, on call all the time and taking care of a lot of the kids in the community where I grew up. He's, he's kind of like locally famous in our town because now he's been there for so long that a lot of the parents that are bringing him kids had surgery done by him a couple decades ago. So for me, it's very, um, it's very gratifying to see how he's had a big impact on people's lives over time. And I wanted to be able to do something like that. And I've really enjoyed the whole journey so far from learning how to be an orthopedic surgeon and then choosing to specialize in taking care of young people and starting my practice here in Pennsylvania and in Wilmington, Delaware. And uh, it's been just as rewarding as I'd hoped. So it's been great. That's, that's awesome. Very well said. And um, your father, still, is he still with us? He is. He's Heck still, yeah. he's still actually practicing. Is he pra oh, yeah. hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. He's down in Florida. <laughs> I'm sure he's like proud of you. He's gotta be like, to, yeah, he's great. We, we talk all the time and, and I get his advice about things, um, both clinical problems as well as, you know, uh, career advice and all kinds of advice. So he's, he's doing great. That's fantastic. That's great to hear. All right. Can you define for our listeners? What exactly is it that you do, um, as an orthopedic surgeon? Orthopedic surgeons specialize in diagnosis and management of problems of the musculoskeletal system. So all the bones, joints, tendons, ligaments. And I think of us as the ones that um, get to look on the inside. So we have kind of the most ability to figure out what's wrong with people and then try to predict what's going to work out and when they're going to need intervention after being able to look at x-rays, MRI, physical exam, um, correlating that with what it looks like on the inside with either arthroscopy or open surgery and then following patients over time and seeing how they do, not just um, after a few months, but after years and years down the road. And that gives us some insight into what the best treatment choice can be for both kids and for grownups. I, I would say that's probably what is most unique about a pediatric surgeon is that, you you know, even before there's any intervention, monitoring is something that you do, you may have to do for years, right? Is it, can you give us an example of like a condition that you would monitor over the course of years prior to performing an intervention, or maybe you perform an intervention uh, and then you would monitor for years afterwards? Cause in most adult orthopedics procedures done, all right, you know, you're discharged. You don't need to see you anymore after six months or so. Yeah. There's, there's a couple very common examples that I see all the time. So one thing is um, scoliosis, which is a sideways bending of the spine that very commonly presents in middle school age group and 
Um, most of the time, it doesn't need any treatment. It needs observation. There are a few powerful treatments that we have, like a brace or an exercise program to try to keep the curve from getting worse. But a handful of the kids have a curve that does get worse. And as you follow that over time, you get a sense of which ones those are going to be. And then we do have some surgeries that we can do to prevent the spine from getting worse and to straighten it out sometimes and make it much better. On the flip side, you know, one of the things I see a lot of is hip dysplasia, developmental dysplasia of the hip, which most commonly affects babies and is detected in infants. And that's something that um, when it's bad and untreated, it really isn't expected to cause problems until young adulthood. Right. And we're able to intervene when the kids are newborns to try to prevent problems like early hip arthritis that would affect you know, people when they're parent age or college age, rather than something that would affect them when they're a toddler or in school age kids. So I've spent a lot of my time trying to think about how things will play out over a very long time frame. And luckily I had a lot of mentors in my training that have been able to follow patients for generations and see what things have worked and what things haven't. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit, and I, we're going to get into scoliosis, hip dysplasia, and a few other things. You mentioned your mentors. How have your mentors molded, or your, even your education, right? How have those, you know, the education of your mentors molded how you practice today? One of the things that I have seen the most in, of in my mentors is the idea that one should take a lot of time and get a lot of input into complex problems before setting a course of treatment that might end up causing um, a lasting impact that's going to play out over many, many years. And so there are times in orthopedic surgery where one has to act quickly, um, but there are a lot of times in pediatric orthopedics where the best thing to do is to take a lot of time, get a lot of analysis, and see what direction the problem is heading in um, before we commit to a certain treatment plan. Some of these things change very slowly over many months or many years, and so time is on our side with trying to decide when we need to time an intervention like a surgery because the timing of surgery is often just as important as the choice of what kind of surgery or how it's done. Very well said. Yeah, no, that's uh, excellent. Was there a learning curve to that? Oh, there's always a learning curve to that. And that's something that I'll continue to learn until I'm as old as my mentors, I'm sure. But, but it's something that having seen people that have been in the same practice area for generations um, to then be able to see what their patients have been like from when they were babies until now they're college age kids and see how, um, problems like hip dysplasia have then played out with correction and what it looks like now when they're, you know, cadets at a military academy trying to put a lot of miles on their hip, for example. You know, that's been fascinating to see for me. You have to take into account what their activity of choice is, right, or what their lifestyle is, I would imagine, uh, when it comes to, you know, timing with things. Can you give an example of a, a, maybe a situation or a case or, you know, where their activity or their, the sport that they chose, or maybe like a cadet, that would be a great example, right? You, the path that they've chosen may guide your decision-making or your recommendations. Yes, definitely. So one example would be on the spectrum of hip dysplasia. Some kids, when they get to high school or college age, they have a, a relatively mild form of dysplasia that affects the hip socket. And those hips then have less of an area for force transfer from the leg to the pelvis. And so it concentrates the stress at the edge of the socket, including on the labrum, which is a a cartilaginous structure at the edge of the socket that helps to seal the hip in and helps to contain the femoral head, the ball of the ball and socket joint. And in people that have a little bit of dysplasia, then they can be more prone to having labral tears or labral injuries. They can also be more prone to having early in life arthritis. And so... 
for kids that are not going to be very active and not put a lot of mileage on their hip, then that hip may last them for a long time without any problems. But for kids that are trying to stay active and do a lot of sports and they're having pain with their activities of daily living, then sometimes we have to intervene in a big way and not just like with a hip arthroscopy to repair a torn labrum, but even with a more invasive operation like reorienting the shape of the hip socket and deciding whether to do one or the other or both of those things is a hard decision that takes getting to know the family and understanding what their goals and expectations are. Yeah, and that could be anything for that kind of example, a runner. But, but, you know, that, that it's one plane for the most part. Yes, it's multiple planes, but sagittal for the most part. Or like a golfer or a hockey player. They're going to put a lot different type of strain through their joint, uh, through the hip joints, for someone who's maybe a little bit more sedentary or even a sagittal plane athlete. Correct. And some of these interventions can even um, balance the hip too much in the other way and create impingement, which is not going to be well tolerated by somebody that needs to do a lot of deep squatting or put their leg up in an overhead position. For example, like a figure skater or ice skater, um, a ballerina, or even somebody that does squatting like a baseball catcher or a hockey goalie. So we have to be aware of, you know, basically doing too little or doing too much and how that's going to fit into their uh, athletic performance as well as just the overall health of their hip for the years to come. Yeah, I feel like you've touched on this a little bit already, but what is the most common injury you see in the clinic amongst amongst pediatric and adolescent populations? Without a doubt, it's broken bones. If you take a group of of all things that we do, you know, broken bones in kids are extremely common. Um, It's close to half of all boys have a broken bone at some point Mm -hmm. while they're growing up, just under that for girls. Thankfully, the good news is that the vast, vast majority of these can be treated without surgery. Um, sometimes the bone needs to be lined back up and held with a cast. A lot of times just protected with a cast or something else until it heals. Um, every once in a while, the bones need to be realigned and held in place. And the good thing is that for kids, they have such a tremendous healing capacity. They heal so quickly. They recover from weakness and stiffness quickly. And they're able to tolerate not only a little bit of malalignment of the bones, but then to go on and remodel it as they grow so that over time, the bones actually become straighter than they are when the broken bone heals. So we're able to manage the ones that need surgery, usually with minimally invasive surgery compared to what we'd have to do for grownups. As kids get closer to being grownups, as they get to 14, 15, 16 years old, then we have to make their bones the shape that they're going to be for the rest of their life. And so it's more likely that we do the surgery that we would do for a grown-up, like lining up the bone, fixing it with a plate and screws or a rod inside the bone. But most of the kids that have broken bones when they're younger, we can just fix with pins or use a cast to get the bones to the right spot for healing and being satisfactory for when they go on for the rest of their life. Awesome. That's, um, yeah, broken bone sounds like, oh, no kidding. Uh, you know, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Now, uh, I think what's unique about what you do is you see everything from a foot injury, uh, you know, an ACL you see growth plate injuries or overuse injuries, apophysitis, um, avulsion fractures. You mentioned fractures, which, you know, like the avulsion fracture counts as a fracture. Um, but overuse injuries. Share, uh, tell me a little bit about ACLs. I, I would love to, you know, ACLs, I feel like it's, it's very common. I'm hoping, you know, having gone through a couple of, through a couple of myself that they're becoming less common. But we, we're also seeing, uh, you know, high prevalence in, in specialization. So uh, sports like soccer, football, you know, more field sports, you know, we see a lot of it. So tell me your experience with ACLs and, and, uh, and some of your thoughts on, and I hate to use the word prevention because you can't prevent it, right? But, you know, um, mitigating risk, I guess you could say. Right. I think that ACL injuries are something that we see commonly still. Um, if you look at the trends for the last few decades, it continues to be on the rise. 
I'm not sure if that has to do with specialization, although that is certainly a different problem for overuse injuries. Mm -hmm. But I think it probably just represents that people continue to do more and more and more sports, which is great. But with more and more sports exposure, there is more and more of a risk of injuries, including for the ACL. Those injuries usually happen from a non-contact, either twisting or pivoting or hyperextension injury. And usually the kids remember the moment that it happened, they feel a pop, they have swelling shortly afterwards, and it hurts a lot to walk in the first few days. Um, They have a hard time getting the knee straight, and it's usually still swollen by the time they come and see me in the office. X-rays are made, and they're usually normal. And if it seems like it's likely that they have an inside-the-knee injury, we'll usually make an MRI test, and that'll help us look at not only the ACL, but also the other ligaments of the knee, the cartilage, and the meniscus. ACL injuries, the kind where it tears in the middle of the ligament, are most common in our high school age athletes, 14, 15, 16-year-olds and older. Um, They can happen in younger athletes too, but it's less common as you get younger. The middle school athletes are more common to get the equivalent injury, which is called a tibial spine avulsion, where the attachment site for the ACL to the shin bone, the tibia, actually pulls away from the rest of the tibia. The good news about that injury is that uh, the way I do it is I put some stitches through the ACL around the base of that fracture and I pull it down and I secure it back to the tibia. And the recovery from that is actually a lot faster than if you have to replace the whole ACL, which is called an ACL reconstruction like we do for the older athletes. But if you have an ACL reconstruction, it still does well. It just takes longer for the ACL to get back into tip-top shape and for the athlete to then be ready to return to sports. All right, so what kind, of a, what kind of healing time when you say quicker... Um, I'm sure everyone's ears perk up, but you know, that's listening to this, uh, what's quicker, right? Like what, what's, what's fat, what's sooner, what's faster. Yeah. After a tibial spine avulsion, when we get the kid to surgery and then back, usually after about three to four months, they tell me my knee feels normal again. And at that point, the bone usually looks healed on the x-ray. And if they're doing well with physical therapy, then I would clear them to go back to sports. Usually after about four months from the time of the surgery. After an ACL reconstruction, usually the kids actually, they, they do feel pretty close to normal after three to four months. But if you do some detailed analysis with the physical therapy, you'll find that they still have some asymmetry between the two legs. And also we know that on a microscopic level, it takes longer than that for the ACL to actually grow into the kind of structure that a ligament needs. And it has nerve fibers that grow into it and the collagen will remodel and then start to actually behave like a ligament rather than like the graft tissue that we put in, which in my case is usually a tendon. And tendons just stretch and spring back in a different way than ligaments do. And so it takes at least half a year, we think somewhere between 9 and 12 months on average, for that to be able to behave like a ligament and to be ready to protect the knee. We're always conscious to try to avoid a repeat ACL tear, which is as high as 15% in most adolescent athletes if you follow it out to a couple years after their surgery. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's what a lot of, I think it's important for, for parents and athletes to understand that, that, you know, when we're dealing with an ACL reconstruction through the rehabilitation cycle and you're seeing them through the clearance of sport or return to practice, um, that our concern necessarily isn't isn't the mechanics that the or the pain that the athlete's dealing with and hopefully none at that point or even their conditioning, all those things are very important. It's the integrity of the structure that is the ACL. So you can feel great at six months. You can be Adrian Peterson and be running Sandhills, you know, at four months. And that's all well and great. But the integrity of the structure, like you said, and you mentioned the collagen fibers, is not appropriate, right? Or is that increased risk of, of re-injury? And, and the complications with a re-injury, uh, I, I would imagine, you know, surgically, 
can be a little, you know, a little bit of a headache, uh, fixations, et cetera, stuff like that. All right, let's move on to growth plates. Uh, we hear this all the time. You know, this is common mom, dad talk, uh, coach talk as growth plates still open. So he's still growing, right. Or, or like there's separation at the growth plate. So he might need surgery or, uh, what, what have you and so forth. But so please share with our listeners, what exactly is a growth plate? What does that mean? And where, how does that apply to what you're seeing? Yeah. I think about growth plates every day, all day, basically. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what makes pediatric orthopedics different than adult orthopedics. Yep. A growth plate is an area in the bone where there are cartilage cells whose job is to divide and replicate so that they can then grow and get bigger and then turn into bone. And it's a specialized place in the body because there's actually not a lot of blood flow through that area because cartilage cells don't like to have blood flow to them. If you think about the cartilage on the end of your bones and your knee, for example, there's no blood vessels that go to it. They get their nutrition from their joint fluid. In the same way in your growth plate, there's cartilage cells there and they don't like to have blood flow. And then when they get to the end of the growth plate, after they've divided and replicated away from where they started from, when they finish their journey and go into the bone, they come up against blood vessels and they get oxygen and they turn into bone. They become the newest bone in your body. And then they continue to get pushed further and further away from the growth plate by the next wave of cartilage cells turning into bone that come in behind them. And maintaining a a core reserve of an area where there's dividing cartilage cells without blood flow is how the growth plate continues to grow. And it will go under the control of your hormones for as long as you're going to keep growing, which for girls on average is till about age 14 and for boys on average is till about 16, but there's wide variability in that. Sure. And then when a growth plate gets injured, what can happen there is that as part of the healing process, the body can try to come in and do what it does to heal a fracture, which is to take out the old bone and put in a new area of bone where it will grow blood vessels into the area to try to stabilize it. And so when that happens at a growth plate, that new ingrowth of blood vessels to try to stimulate a healing response can sometimes make what we call a bony bar or, or a growth arrest at the area where the growth plate is, where it, it loses that reserve core of cartilage cells and it turns into bone at that area. Whether that's going to be significant for you mostly depends on how much growth we would expect you to have left at the time of the injury. And so for each growth plate, that's a little bit different. And on average, if there happens to you with more than two years of growth remaining from that growth plate, then you can expect that it's going to cause a problem either in length or the alignment, depending on how the growth plate gets affected. So that's one way that growth plates can pose a problem. They can also pose a solution for you, which is that if you have a broken bone in, in a growth plate that's still active and open, but the growth plate's not injured, then as the growth plate grows, it knows to put down more bone on one side and less on the other. And that's part of the process of remodeling. And that's why broken wrists, for example, are the most common injury that we see in young kids. And most of them don't need surgery. Even if it heals a little bit bent, there's so much growth coming down the road for the wrist that the body's able to straighten that out with time. Now, the other thing about growth plates is that there are growth plates even where your bone's not necessarily getting much longer or bigger, but at places where tendons attach to bones, like where your kneecap tendon attaches to your shin bone or where your Achilles tendon attaches to your heel bone or where your hamstrings or some of your quadriceps muscles attach to your pelvis. And those are relative weak areas. If you think about the chain that links you up, say, for example, from your pelvis to your growth plate to the bone on the other side the tendon, the muscles, and then your quadriceps tendon down by your knee and that tendon, and then the kneecap, 
and then all the way to your shin, right? So the weakest part of that is often at the growth plates on either side. So those are areas that can that can ache, they can hurt, they can feel the strain. And we have various name disorders for that, like Osgood slaughters, for example, or Seavers disease for the heel. But also they can get injured all of a sudden, like an avulsion fracture of one of those growth plates off the pelvis, which is a very, very common problem that we see. Yeah. Um, often after a period of overuse, but sometimes not but often after overuse for people that repetitively use their quadriceps, like soccer players, for example. Right. Yeah. And so in your experience, what, why do these injuries occur, right? Like uh, overuse, trauma, sometimes it can be a fracture through a growth plate, you know, due to trauma. But, uh, you know, I'm curious, um, why do they, why do they occur? Would you say it's overuse, sports specialization? You know, what can we do to mitigate the risk of these happening? Yeah, I think that, um, one of the main issues that we're seeing right now is a wave of increasing sports specialization, increasing sports activity. And so if you think about most high-level athletes, like professional athletes or um, collegiate-level athletes, you know, we mentioned Ohio State earlier. There was, there was a good report about Ohio State football players that most of them were multi-sport high school athletes, yep. right? Because participating in multiple sports gives you good cross-training. It helps develop your body in other ways, and it helps reduce the dependence on certain muscle groups and certain force vectors that are likely to cause overuse injuries. So I think a lot of these things that we see sometimes are from people trying to do the same sport year-round or maybe two different sports, but they're overlapping and they're on multiple teams at the same time, participating in as many as three or four games in a tournament weekend um, and going all the rest of the week with practices and games as well. And Nobody who's playing at a high level, like if you think about professional sports leagues or the NFL, they, they wouldn't put themselves through a schedule like that. And they all take an off season and they all take some time to train. And so most of us advise families that um, kids at all levels should have at least one day off per week and at least one weekend off per month and at least one season off per year from any given sport. I love that. I love that. Uh, we had a guest on the podcast um, several months ago that, he trains, he's a strength conditioning coach, has his own facility up in Downingtown, and he does not train athletes that are seventh grade or younger that specialize in a single sport. He won't, he won't, he won't work with them, you know, it's a, it, which I think is an interesting, you know, that's his, that's his platform to say, I'm, I'm not down with the specialization. I thought that was yeah. pretty interesting. I think, you know, there are tremendous examples of, of people that have focused in early on a sport and they, they've done remarkably well, like the Williams sisters in tennis mm -hmm. or like Tiger Woods in golf, and, and they've certainly taken it to great heights. Um, but I think that, you know, you do put your body at a bit of a risk when you choose that. It doesn't mean that you can't focus and, and really train a lot on a sport. It just means that you have to mix it up and give your body the ability to recover, you know, and have some rest days just like you would with any other kind of exercise program. Yeah, no, very well said. Uh, now I understand your take on that. Uh, what is the most common pathology that you perform surgery on? Uh, what are the indications? Would that also be fractures? It's, it's for me. It's it's definitely broken bones. They're, okay, they're just so common. They they outweigh as a group all the other things that I do. The next most common things are, are probably knee surgery injuries for ligament and cartilage and meniscus disorders, things like an ACL or like uh, patellofemoral instability operations or meniscus sure. operations. We do a lot of arthroscopic knee surgery. Um, so that's probably the next most common thing that we do. Okay. Um, interesting. There's a lot of, I'm hearing more and more different, like I've heard more plica procedures done lately, uh, patellofemoral instability procedures done lately. Um, you know, what, what's your take on it? Do you feel like that's um, more often than not? Do you feel like, yeah, that's completely appropriate to do them. They should be done more often. Or do you feel like they're probably done too much? What, what are your thoughts on that? Sometimes I feel like some of the parents in this area, 
our, our like push it a little bit. Like we've been to three different PTs. You know, you're our last ditch effort before we have surgery. Like, well, how long has this been going on for? Nine months. All right, let, you know, let's get this straightened out. Like, obviously, I don't want your son or daughter to suffer that long, but I also uh, surgery. You know, on a on a thirteen, fourteen year old, you know, that can be um, challenging at times. So, I'm curious your take on that. Yeah, you know, the dislocating kneecap is is a complicated problem that yeah. I see often. Um, the good news is that most of the time it goes better for people than other unstable joints. For example, a dislocating shoulder, most of those in young athletes are going to go on for repeat dislocation. Actually, for dislocating kneecap, it's the opposite. And if you look at first-time kneecap dislocations um, that happen from an injury, like I was twisting trying to hit a baseball, for example, and my kneecap went out and it had to be reset, most of the kids will do well with the program of a stabilizing brace and physical therapy, about 80%. Wow. And about 20% will have additional kneecap dislocations. Now, once you have your second one, if you take all comers, it's actually then it goes to about 50-50 from there that okay. they're going to continue to have kneecap dislocations, which doesn't mean you have to throw in the towel. You can continue to try to brace and, and have rehabilitation. But at that point, we start to think about, you know, what's the best path forward. And it depends on a couple things. You know, I, I do look for each kneecap instability um, patient that I have. I look at some additional factors to try to predict who is more likely to have recurrent kneecap dislocations. And so there are some things that we look at on your x-rays and on your physical exam to try to pick up abnormalities about your leg alignment or about the attachment sites for your kneecap tendons that would predispose you to continue having more dislocations. The most important thing after a kid has a kneecap dislocation is to look for if there's an injury to the cartilage or some other injury in the knee that needs surgery. Sometimes if you have a big swollen knee, um, it can be because the piece of the cartilage has been knocked off after a kneecap dislocation. That's most commonly after the first time rather than if it's someone that's had their third or fourth or fifth dislocation, but still something that we should check for. So I'll usually make an MRI if they have a big swollen knee after the first time to make sure we don't have that problem. If they do have that and they have a piece of, of loose cartilage or bone in the knee, then we need to go in there and either take it out or fix it back in place. Um, and then for those patients, you might think about stabilizing their kneecap at the same time, and I usually will. For patients that don't have that problem, but just are going to go through with therapy and then have additional um, instability after trying therapy, trying bracing, I don't, um, I don't recommend, oh, you have to have surgery after two dislocations or three or four. I think I try to factor in how much of this is a problem, is a problem for your life and when is the right time to have an operation for you based on where you're at with your season, when you have some time to recover and take some downtime. And so it's okay with me if you've had two, if you want to try to finish out the season, knowing that you might have a third, that's okay. Because the operation that we're going to do for your knee is not going to change. And the odds of us being able to still stabilize your kneecap are still very high. And people are usually pretty satisfied after that operation. So when you take into account, and very well explained, when you take into account the alignment, you know, some of the things that you had mentioned with you know, patellofemoral instability, how you're looking at, what do you find in the hip? Do you find anything in the hip? I know PT, there's a big push, like glute medius, stabilization, control the track, not the train. Uh, you know, I'm curious your, your take on if, what abnormalities, if any, that you see at the hip. Right. So um, at the level kind of just below the hip, between the hip and the knee, everybody's femur has, if you go from hip to knee, it has an um, intrinsic twist to it that we call version. And if you think about if you're laying down on your back and your kneecaps are pointing to the ceiling, then your top of your bone actually points up a little bit towards the ceiling on average. 
And in some people, it can be even more than you'd expect. There's a, there's a natural variation, a natural range, but some people have quite a bit of what we call excessive antiversion or entwisting of the femur. And some people actually have it the other way. And so for all the kids with kneecap instability, we do check that and make sure that it's not excessive. If we really are worried, sometimes I'll do a version study CT, which is a low-dose CT to take a look at that. And every once in a while, somebody with an entwisting kneecap has it has it so bad that it's contributing to their kneecap instability that if you correct that problem, it can resolve the kneecap instability. So it's like you said, the kneecap is really at the center of a tug of war, right? And, and um, between the muscles that are above it and attaching and pulling on it and the patellar tendon below. And so trying to realign those things to get it to where it's not getting pulled out of its groove is part of how we look at and analyze what the right surgery is for each kid that has a different surgery. So sometimes I, I just have to replace a ligament. Sometimes I actually have to cut the bone and reshape it to get the kneecap to stay on track. Very well explained. I, I think that it's a, almost like a great, like it's a visual thing for me at least. And that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, that's a great, great way to explain it with the kneecaps uh, lying on your back. Hip conditions. We talked about hip dysplasia. Can you define, maybe you did this a little bit earlier, but can you define what hip dysplasia is and what are some procedures that you see, like you said, you monitor throughout, you know, childhood um, as they get older? What are some different procedures that, that you may um, you may do to treat, you know, any complications with that type of injury? So developmental hip dysplasia is a disorder that um, most commonly affects young infants. Um, and what it is, is when the hip socket is too shallow Usually, this will have been from a stress placed on the hip while they're inside the womb, inside mom. And so, if you think about it, the hip likes to be down in the deepest part of the socket, and it still has to form and grow. And just because you're born doesn't mean your hip socket is done forming and growing. It's going to form and grow for 14 or 16 years. But those early months while you're inside mom are some of the most important. And it's actually fascinating. They've the hip socket really only grows into a round socket in response to having the ball down inside the socket. They had some experiments um, on chickens and other things where they put a little block inside there and it grew into a block shape. So it will it will grow in response to that. And a lot of the joints are like that. They grow in response to having their normal articulation and normal motion. And so when motion gets impaired because the leg is restricted inside you either before you're born or after you're born from excessive swaddling, being tied down to a board, something of that nature, which is pretty rare in the United States, but mm -hmm. has happened around the world. Then the hip gets levered away, like the ball gets levered towards the edge of the socket and the socket then tends to grow shallower. And that leads to a cycle of a little bit of instability and further lateralization of the ball, which then leads to further shallowness of the socket. And that's yep. called hip dysplasia. And usually we can treat that without surgery if we can get the ball back into the deepest part of the socket while the children are very young. And so we have some non-operative ways to do that with bracing, to put the ball down in the deepest part of the socket. And then as time goes on, that socket, which was growing shallow, will then grow back towards a normal shape. Now, there are other times that we detect it. So if it's not detected when you're a newborn, but instead when you're a toddler and the ball is out of the socket, sometimes we can't get it to go in just by using a brace or some other means. So we actually have to open up the hip joint and put the ball down in the socket and then start to reshape the bone to get it back on track. And sometimes the ball can be in the socket, but it's just like we talked about earlier, just the socket is a little bit shallow. The ball rides a little bit towards the edge and it puts a little bit of stress, extra stress on the labrum. And there's a little bit of a shallowness to the socket. 
And so for those people that are already, you know, usually that presents with pain when you're older, like high school or college age, for some of those kids, the right thing to do is to um, actually reorient the position of the hip socket. So we actually can cut around the socket, turn it in space, secure it with screws, and then it will heal where the bone was cut. And then that usually will greatly improve the mechanics of the hip. That's called a PAO or a periacetabular osteotomy. Okay. And then, and then the fixation is never removed. That stays and that will never be a problem with motion, right? Because obviously at that point in their life, motion will, you know, will progress pretty quickly, I would imagine. Right. So the fixation screws that we use, they, they don't go into the joint or they don't affect right. the, you know, the joint motion at all. They just hold the repositioned piece of bone in place. Right. If we have to do the operation when the children are young, like in a four or a five-year-old, then usually we'll take the screws out because if you think about the size of the pelvis, it's going to get much, much bigger over the next 10 years. Right. And the screws would get overgrown and they'd end up in the middle of the bone. Right. That's why I'd say we think about you know future growth all the time here. Sure. Whereas if we do it for you when you're 15 or 20, then by that, your bone's the size that it's going to be and we only have to take the screws out if they're bothering you. Sometimes they do, but after the bone's all healed up, then they can come out if you'd like, but most of the time they can stay in. That's, um, that's interesting. And these types of, so let's, uh, so I have a, a 16 month old daughter and I know you have, you have a couple little ones and it's cool to see the pediatrician, you know, put the, put our daughter into, you know, into Faber and apply some overpressure with that. Um, and, uh, so, so let's say that's a, a positive test, right? So what would indicate a positive test? And, uh, and then typically I would expect the pediatricians refer to ortho. Uh, so listen, I got an orthopedic doc you should see just to follow up, just to keep an eye on this, um, is what I would imagine I, w I would hear in that case. Um, pl please share like the importance of that. Uh, being in medicine, we know like, no, no, listen, you need, you really should follow up with ortho. I know the baby doesn't have pain or your infant doesn't have pain, but, uh, it's something that we should monitor moving forward. Tell me the importance of that, please. Yeah, I think that's critical. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about these hip issues, they, they don't become painful until people are already adults. Um, but there are things that we can do when the kids are young to try to not have that be painful for them when they're older and get the hips back on track. So in, in newborn infants, the hips will feel unstable. You can actually feel the hip going in and out of the socket when it's, when it's quite unstable. Um, and so when a pediatrician feels that, then the next best thing for a young child is that they should have a hip ultrasound. And the ultrasound is the most accurate way to look at the position of the hip, the shallowness of the socket, and the stability of the hip. And then sometimes we'll follow that along with different ultrasounds and see what direction it's going. And if it's clear that it needs treatment, then we're able to start treatment with, um, with a brace. For kids that are older, like for your daughter's age, if there's a, a limitation of motion of the hips, after about six months of age, it's hard to look with an ultrasound. And so the best next step is usually an x-ray to look at the hips. So the pediatricians will often order an x-ray and take a look. And then they will end up coming to see an orthopedist to talk about, you know, whether this is something that we can still manage with a brace or whether it's something that might need an operation. And so sometimes in that age group, like in the preschooler age group, the findings can be pretty subtle. The kids, they often don't have pain. If you look at the way they walk, it's a little bit asymmetric. Um, but as you know, most kids that are just starting to walk, they kind of walk a little bit funny anyway. Yeah. But the difference is that um, as time goes on, kids that have a one-sided hip problem, they'll get a pattern of asymmetry in the way they walk, which is different than just kind of the, uh, I'm clumsy because I'm learning how to walk. Right. 
Um, and then if you look at the motion of their hips, usually there'll be a very small um, difference in the amount of motion between the two sides. And that's as the hip is out of place, then it gets stiff. And so we'll be able to see that. And sometimes that can be the only signs from the outside that the hip is really, you know, not really in the socket where it should be. And I think that's why, um, that's kind of why I want to bring attention to it because that may be the only sign and not too many parents are looking for that sign. Right. So it's, um, something I think that should be taken seriously by all parents when your pediatrician says follow up with ortho because, you know, your child's hip is making some noises and they, you know, they order an x-ray, um, making noises or going in and out, then I think it's important to make sure we follow up with ortho. Uh, and most, most of the time, like you said, monitoring, bracing, et cetera. Um, what, so tell me a little bit about what you do with the spine. I feel like we've gone through the whole body with you, which is amazing. Uh, tell me a little bit about some, you know, what you mentioned scoliosis. Uh, are there any other conditions of the spine? You talk, you know, pars fractures, et cetera. So I'm, I'm curious a little bit about uh, what you see in the spine and are there any specific sports that you feel like um, contribute to these types of injuries? Yeah, so I do see a lot of patients for scoliosis. It's one of the more common things that's that's out there that it's, it actually affects about 3% of all kids have some form of scoliosis. Most of them, it's very mild. And usually there's no specific cause for it. It's just a sideways curvature and a rotational buckling of the spine often runs in families. And like I said, most of the time it stays mild. Most of the time, if it needs treatment, it's with a brace. And sometimes in severe cases, it needs surgery. But most of the time it does not. There are other things that we see in the spine. Um, one of the common things in athletes is if they come in and they can have persistent low back pain at the base of the spine, like right where the spine meets the pelvis, sometimes in people that do a lot of hyperextension activities. So this would be, for example, classically, um, people that swim butterfly, uh, gymnasts, um, rowers, um, figure skaters, they can get basically an overload of the parts in the back of the spine. There's a part there between the joints that's called the pars or the interarticular part, the part between the joints. And if you look on the side x-ray, you could see where it's almost like the vertebra above it is hitting down on it like a little hammer. And then every time you lean back and bend back with your spine, it hits on it. And it's kind of like if you've ever bent a paperclip back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and then it starts to thin out. And then if you keep bending it back and forth, it will actually have a little break there. And the spine can do the same thing. It, if you bend it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, not, you know, 20 times, but 2,000 times in that area, then it starts to hurt. And if you look at that on an MRI, you might sometimes will see a little bit of what we call bone marrow edema or a little bit of swelling inside the bone, like the bone is experiencing too much stress. And if it goes the next step, then what we see is that actually the bone will crack and then you can actually see the difference on an x-ray or a CT scan. And so that's called a par stress fracture or spondylolysis or a splitting of that part of the spine. Um, every once in a while, that also is associated with actually a, a movement, um, a forward movement of the vertebra relative to the pelvis that's called spondylolisthesis, but it's, it's a lot less common. But mostly we see with pain, we see people have um a stress reaction there in the back from overuse. If we catch that early, then we usually will treat that with rest from the offending activity. Sometimes we'll use a brace in some patients and then we'll get them in with a program of physical therapy and we'll focus on trying to change the mechanics that led to that problem in the first place. And 
many times it takes a long time to get it all the way better, sometimes up to half a year. But I would say somewhere around 90 to 95% of those kids will get better with that pathway and not need an operation for that problem. That's a, what is a typical presentation? Because I feel like I, I've seen, personally, I've seen some varying presentations with a pars fracture in particular. How, how does, you know, an adolescent, typically adolescent, right, uh, present with a, a pars fracture injury? What symptoms would they have? Most of the time, they just have low back pain yeah. right in the middle, and it hurts to try to um, bend backwards. Right. And usually they don't remember, oh, this is the day that I fell and broke my back. No, it, it's just I've been, I've been trying to keep up with my sports, and I've been having this back pain, and it's been getting worse. That's why I see them most of the time. Yeah, and when there's pain bending backwards, it's not a pain that they can move through and then, oh, it, it went away. Usually it's, it gets worse as they go further back. I think that's another thing that for PTs it's worth noting because if you, you see that and all the other pieces are there, that's something that, you know, we need to refer out for. We can't, don't, don't start mobilizing that spine. You know, don't start reinforcing an extension-based program because you think it's a herniated disc and a rower. You know, I th- we see that all the time, and I see that mistake made, unfortunately, too often. Um, and when there's a pars fracture on one side, is it? How, do you know how common it is to see it then on, later occur on the other side if, if there, there isn't an intervention? I don't have the, the exact number, okay. but it, it can actually show up with both sides at the okay. same time or just with one side at the same time. So I've seen kids that have had one side, and then they kind of they got better from that, and then they had it again, it seems, on the other right. side that have had an MRI and then a second MRI. And I've had kids that show up with it affecting both sides at the same time. Okay. And it can go, it can go either way. Yeah, that's, um, I, I, and now you can, can you play through sports with that, with, with, uh, with a pars fracture? Once your pain starts to feel better, you can, you just have yeah. to make some modifications to usually it's a modification, not to the sport, but to the training regimen that you're doing to lead up to it, to try to avoid those, you know, extending the spine with a heavy force. Yeah. I think it's, a, a, you know, I'll throw my two cents on there for PTs. It's important to understand the mechanics of the sport and the training regimen that, that, individuals going through so if you're dealing with a figure skater that's going to be a completely different training regimen lifting carrying extending um versus a rower versus um you know other team sports i've seen football players with it just from their training not necessarily from you know the, the sport so i think it's important for us to understand the mechanics uh the frequency of the mechanics how much force is being applied or load is being applied uh and and then modify learn like seriously study it Learn it, uh, and then and then you know make your mechanical accommodations from there or uh, recommendations. Do you have a specific message for for parents who are hesitant to schedule an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, I think anybody that has listened with us so far, thank you so much. Um, you know, I think one of the main takeaways is that for most of these conditions that we've talked about, and most of the things that I see. Um, we have treatments that are not surgery. And so most of the kids that come to see me don't need an operation. They might need some treatment and that can be something as simple as uh, something different to put inside their shoe, an arch support or a heel lift or a cushion or an orthotic, maybe a brace, right, for the hips. But most of the kids don't need an operation. Even the kids with injuries, they may need a knee brace or a program of physical therapy and the kids with broken bones need a cast. And when we do need surgery, most of the time it's the less invasive kind of surgery. Um, there are some things that we need to do a bigger operation for, but like I mentioned in the beginning, most of those things time is on our side for, we can wait and see and kind of plan and anticipate for it and make sure that everybody's ready. And it's very unlikely that you would, you know, come to see me and and find out that you now all of a sudden need a really big operation and that you have to do it urgently. 
you know, most of the time we have some time to think about those things and get ready for them. Even when we do have to do a larger operation. All right. Very well said. Um, all right. I have, uh, our five quick cues. Um, I'm going to throw at you here. These quick answers, uh, some of which we probably already, you know, touched on a little bit. Um, so what sport do you see the most injuries from right now? I, th- I think it's soccer. You know, I see all kinds of injuries from that because it's a mix of, of kids that get into overuse as well as acute injuries like broken bones from falling on things. So I got to say, it's very common. And it's, it's soccer right now. Okay. Um, what procedure that you perform do you see the best results from? I think the ACL reconstruction kids do great. They surprise me with, you know, the amount of how big you think the surgery is, taking a tendon from someplace in your body, drilling tunnels through your bone and fixing it together, knowing that they're going to have a long rehab course. But, you know, most of the athletes that we see for that come in and they're highly motivated and ready and prepared and they're committed to the rehabilitation. And I think their relationship with their therapist before and after surgery makes everything go much better for them. Very well said. Uh, uh, What new surgical technique uh, or nuance are you most excited about? You know, in our field, one of the things that's emerging um, is the field of guided growth for the spine. So for scoliosis in particular, you know, we've gotten um, a lot better over the last few years, I would say, at trying to figure out who is the best candidate for guided growth um, to try to preserve motion, to try to have a, a different kind of surgery for scoliosis. I think we still have a long way to go on knowing exactly who's right for that and how the best way to do it is. And so right now, you know, the need for having to do another surgery, a resurgery, a reoperation is higher with that procedure still than with our more tried and true techniques. But I think if you look at the pace that it's getting better at, I'm optimistic that in the future we'll be much better at that. What is uh, one rule you would like to see change in youth athletics? You know, I see a lot of, of overuse injuries from throwers, especially baseball players. And, and one thing that I've noticed a lot is that it's not just the pitchers. It's the other players in the field that throw the ball a lot. So whether that's thrown from the far side of the field or especially the catchers. And so I do think that just like they pay attention in youth baseball to pitch count limits, they really should pay attention to total throwing limits, probably do a better job of counting how many times the catchers are throwing back the ball, because I have seen some catchers with just overuse throwing type injuries that are, that are really bad and they're really challenging for those kids. Yeah, I know some little leagues, so this kind of, I'm not 100% sure, but I know some little leagues will have limitations on a number of innings playing catcher uh, before or after pitching. Right. Um, you know, what's interesting to me, I, I found this out only recently, maybe two, three years ago, that there is, so you have your Little League Baseball, and I believe the mound is um, 45 feet from, the, from home plate, and the bases are 60 feet away from one another. And then you have your Major League Baseball, which for me, and maybe for you, you went from Little League to that field, right? And that was a big jump. I played catcher, throwing that ball to second base is a long throw. But now they've introduced an intermediate field, uh, which I, I don't know the exact measurements, but somewhere in between all of those measurements, right? So uh, 90 feet from base to base in the bigs uh, and, you know, high school level as opposed to the 60. And it is, it is interesting that there are some baseball players that are playing on the intermediate field uh, for one team and then playing on the big field for another team. And what's also fascinating to me is, well, maybe I should ask you this question first. I'm interrupting the five cues, so you can, you can edit this if you want, but um, what age group do you see little league Abo in the most? Like it, are we talking like under 12, we'd say over 12, like if 12 is over under 12 and a half is over under. 
You know, I would say it's mostly in the right around that 12 to 13 age group. I know. Yeah. So the kids that get um, true little leaguer's elbow is when you get an irritation of the growth plate on the inside of the elbow, the medial epicondyle. And that growth plate tends to close up right around 14 for boys. And so that under 14 is when they tend to get that growth plate. And over 14 is when they tend to get more of an irritation for the ligament that stabilizes the inside part of the elbow, which attaches to that spot. So I, I do kind of divide the age there based on whether that growth plate is open or closed on the x-ray more than just their actual chronologic age. Um, but it, it does tend to be right around there. Like you pick the right age for that. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. that, that ligament you talk about is pretty, pretty important. The, the UCL, if I, if, if, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason I bring, I asked you that question is because the, that is the age that, that uh, little league baseball wraps up and that's when that transition happens pitch counts beyond that there is no such thing that's what's fascinating i mean talk about like a hiccup how do we miss that i mean so we're, we're, we got pitch counts on baseball players that are that are 12 years old and 11 years old and younger but we don't have them on 13 years old when they're going through the biggest transition you know so uh i know that <laughs> i'm off my soapbox yeah that's a, that's a great point so and i think that like you know the pitch counts are critical um but also the effortful throw counts yep. really should really be instituted for the catchers and like I, i'd be fascinated to see what comes out of having an intermediate length field and see if that can decrease some of the overuse injuries but I think yeah. it's really important is to give your arm some time to rest just think about what the big league guys do they don't go out and throw hard every day yeah, I, I go off about baseball. We have talked about it in most of my podcasts. Uh, ten, if you if your son or daughter throws overhead ten months out of the year, out of the twelve months, right? They are ten times more likely to suffer an elbow injury, um, and and an injury that may result in you know a, a visit with Doc here. And and you're in good hands if that happens. But if we can prevent that from happening, that that would be great. Um, but no, uh, very well said. And that's when you specialize too. I want to throw that in there. Seventh, eighth grade. That's when you're starting to specialize a little bit. So uh, just not great time and stop pitch counts. Um, what's, uh, what's one mistake that you see made during the rehabilitation process? I think the most common thing is that, especially after kids go through an operation and then it doesn't hurt anymore after a few weeks, then sometimes they want to move forward. And if we've done a repair of something, whether that's the labrum in your hip or cartilage in your knee, and we need to protect it a little bit more, um, either by offloading with crutches or by using a knee brace to keep your knee straight, then it's important not to engage those muscles too early and put too much stress on that repair because it can lead to either failure of the repair or just kind of an overall delay in your recovery if you get into some bad muscle activation patterns, some compensatory patterns, and we sometimes see that, that even though everything turns out okay in the long run, it just makes for a bumpier road. Well said, and, and a lot of these uh, kids, athletes, uh, student athletes are going through a lot, right? Like physically, psychologically, you know, with school and social life and family, and to throw hiccups in there when it doesn't, you know, need to be that way, you know, isn't the best. All right, bonus question. Uh, number six, would you let your son or daughter play football? Yeah, I, you know, right now I have a four-year-old son. I have a one-year-old daughter, so, um, and they're great. And he's just learning how to run around and kick a soccer ball right now. I, you know, down the road, if, if he wants to play football and he has the body for football, I have no problem with that, especially up to about the varsity high school level. I don't see the kind of injuries that get parents worried, you know, everybody worries about cervical spine and concussions and those are serious things. And I don't mean to take them lightly, but I, they're a lot less common um, in the younger kids. And once you get up to varsity or collegiate level, then they become increasingly more common. And that's, that's when I start to worry a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I think the odds that my son's going to be, 
you know, playing for Notre Dame are, are pretty darn low based on <laughs> our, uh, our genetic makeup. But, but, you know, if he wants to, then that'd be great for him. But I, I don't think it's in the cards. Uh, that's cool. I haven't had not one, one, you've been here for all of them. I haven't had not one physician or medical professional tell me that they would not let their son or daughter play football. What, what are your thoughts on that? Does that surprise you? Or you're like, yeah, eh, what's the big deal? Because parents are just like, no, football, no way. And I'm not advocating for it or against it, but I, I think it's a good question. Yeah, I think, you know, you're likely with football or with lots of other sports, right? Soccer, even cheerleading, you're, you know, your odds of, of getting an injury that we need treatment, they're there, they're real, right? Things like an ACL tear or a kneecap instability or a broken bone. The good news is that even with those things, which are really hard injuries, you know, we can get you through the vast majority of them and get you back to sports. But things like um, a cervical spine injury or, a con- you know, repetitive concussions, those are things that can alter the course of your life forever. However, they're, they're quite rare, and you're probably much more likely to have one from a bad accident, like from a car, injury, a car accident or something else. And so I think you have to kind of, you know, as you make decisions about risk and reward for your whole life and you think about where this fits in to the rest of your life and what you get out of it, that's how we kind of think, you know, doctors see a lot of bad things happen to people, but mostly not from the football field, mostly from other things in life. Sure. No, very well said. What um, What's the best way for our listeners to find you, get in touch with you, uh, reach out to you, Instagram, t- Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Nemours number, but however you would want to share y- your contact info. Yeah. So actually, if you go to our Nemours website and you can look me up, and I'm there. I, I'm not on on Instagram or anything. We have Nemours Instagram, and they and they um, they do a great job with that kind of stuff. But if you look, our offices are here in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and I also see patients at Nemours Children's Hospital, of Delaware, which is just recently till was until recently called Alfred I. Dupont Hospital for Children, and that's down in Wilmington. But mostly, I'm up here in Bryn Mawr in Pennsylvania, and um, I think we have a, a great office up there. We have a full service place. It, you know, we're able to do everything right on site: X-rays, bracing, everything that you would need to come through and kind of find out what's wrong and, and get treatment in most circumstances. And so families can come, they can find me there. I'm, um, it's relatively, you know, you don't have to wait too long to get a visit in my office. And I, I try to set everything up with my scheduling so that um, for almost everything that we're going to do, we can get you in and into a room and seen by us. And if we're going to get x-rays, get x-rays or do a cast, do a cast and get you kind of wrapped up and on your way within about an hour. That's my goal for everybody that comes to the door. That's great. Sometimes if it's very complicated, it takes a little bit longer or, you know, occasionally I run behind, but for the most part, we try to get you, you know, going in that, that amount of time frame. So that's what we'd like to do. Yeah. Check the show notes. We'll have uh, the website. Yeah. And, and your information on there as well. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Listen, I'm thoroughly, this has been amazing. I'm, I'm genuinely like blown away. Seriously. The amount of body parts, you have to know about and from the infant to that, you know, the mature skeleton really like it's um, yeah, I'm kind of like, I'm blown away. So it's been cool. Well, thanks very much. You know, it's, it's a lot of things I try to keep up. It's, it's a humbling feel. I learn new things every day, or at least I try to, to try to keep up um, with what's the newest and the latest and the greatest and try to figure out how all these things fit together, right. From foot to knee to hip, all the way up and see how that connects to spine and see how we can make sure that everything's working well together and try to figure out what the actual issue is so we can come up with a plan. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And, um, you know, I think it's just important to remember that lots and lots of grown up orthopedic surgeons know about these problems as well. They, everybody gets trained in pediatrics and they have a good sense of 
too, of which things need um, attention from a pediatric orthopedist in a different way. So if you're seeing an adult orthopedist, most of the time they're, they're aware of, hey, this is something that, that needs to be seen by a pediatric person. And frankly, a lot of the things they're, they're very good at managing too. So it's not like every kid with an orthopedic problem needs to see a pediatric orthopedist. But um, for the ones that do, just ask your orthopedist what the factors are with growth and, and whether it makes sense to see a pediatric person and they'll let you know. They're, they'll know. They're great closing notes. I, I appreciate that. All right. That's a wrap. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It would mean so much to me if you could leave us a five-star review so more listeners like you could get this important information. See you next time.